A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode is the next one in our ongoing series of the great American Jewish cities, and this time we're up to Cleveland, heading once again out to the Midwest. And this episode has been generously sponsored by Dovi Zilber in honor of Aaron Lichtenstein, who has made a big impact in Cleveland ever since he moved there, and also Lili Nishmas Moshe Avigdor Ben Yaakov Yitzchak, who was born in Cleveland and returned as one of the first ten Talmidim of the re-established Tells in 1941 under Abmatul Katz and the other great Russia Yeshiva. also want to thank um, Rabbi Rafal Davidovich, a prominent uh, rabbi in Cleveland, for sharing, graciously sharing and giving up his time to provide stories and information about Cleveland and, and others uh, who have uh, provided uh, sources and information as well. Um, before I get to Cleveland, there's a huge amount of feedback on our Lower East Side um, two episodes, part one and two, and I think we'll have to have a part three one day. Um, speaking of which, I think in Cleveland, this one is going to be two parts. I think we're not going to be able to get it all in into the first part, so keep your eyes out for part two, which should arrive in uh, another day or two. But getting back to the Lower East Side, so we got an amazing amount of feedback, uh, more than usual. So this is just a sampling. There's going to be more to come. Uh, there's uh, definitely you know more coming in, and I'll try to update you and all the good stuff um, that the great and knowledgeable listeners of Jewish History Soundbites are sending in. So first of all, as a basic correction, I implied that the Brooklyn Bridge was uh, built only later in late 1800s or early 1900s. In fact. It, of course, was built in 1883, so it was around quite early. But here's a letter I got. It's a great one. Um, I quote, When Mike Bloomberg came to be Menachem Avel, my father, on the Lower East Side, there were various tzedakah plates. On his way out, he looked at the plates, took out a dollar, and dropped it in the Bialerstucker Shul plate and said, If it was good enough for Bugsy Siegel, it's good enough for me. End of letter. That was fantastic. Also on the uh, Lower East Side episode, I mentioned about how the legend of Shmuel Kunda and Anshe Kartoffel it makes us have this, you know, beautiful and 
wonderful memories of, of the of the romanticized the Lower East Side. So I got this amazing letter. I'm just going to read a an excerpt from it. I'm not going to read the whole thing. So here it goes. The story of Shmuel Kunda about Anshe Kartoffel is based on a true story with my great-grandfather who saved MTJ from foreclosure by the bank. Mr. Isidore Breide, as he was known, hence the character Isidore in the Kunda tape, bailed out, bailed out the yeshiva of MTJ from foreclosure by the bank with his connections at the time with Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia. He lived in the Lower East Side in the early 1920s and had an open house of Achnasas Archem on Henry Street. Many guests who came there would end up living in the, in the house for years. Among the guests were many Gedailim who came from Europe collecting for the yeshivas, and they would stay by the Breide house. It goes on further, and it, it made, literally when I got this letter, it made my day, maybe my month, at the story that we all grew up with, the Shmuel Kunda, is actually based on a true story. Um, so here's another one, another letter. I'm quoting, I know that you couldn't get everything in with the Lower East Side, but one omission from today's part two was the Matizdar Farav and the Yeshivas Hassan Seifer. The Matizdar Farav arrived in the Lower East Side in 1938 from Austria following the Anschluss and immediately opened the Yeshivas Hassan Seifer, which existed in the Lower East Side for about 30 years. I think it moved to Borough Park in 1969. As a matter of fact, Yeshiva Shlomo Kluger merged with the Chassan Seifer until this very day. The sign in front of the building in Bar Park reads, Yeshiva and Masifta Chassan Seifer, Shlomo Solomon Kluger Yeshiva. End of that letter. So that's a good and important uh, addition was the Matazdor Farav. Another shtibel we didn't mention was the Nine and Neinziger shtibel, a famous shtibel. And, and uh, in the Lower East Side, there was also the Garlitzer Rebbe of Tzanz, and, of course, there are many other shtibels and rebbes that we could have talked about. Unfortunately, we didn't get to all of them. Perhaps we will do so in a part three. But now I want to move out of the crowded tenement buildings of the Lower East Side, and we're going to go out to the glorious Midwest and head out to Cleveland, where they were also downtown there for quite a bit of time. They were downtown Cleveland in the heart of the city, which um, today is not a Jewish neighborhood at all, to say the least on 105th Street, that was the center of the Jewish neighborhood for many, many years, and they moved out to the suburbs, and, and the Jewish neighbors are actually not in Cleveland anymore. They're in University Heights and Beechwood and Cleveland Heights and a couple other neighborhoods, the Orthodox neighborhoods and, and uh, other Jewish neighborhoods. Um, they're all in the suburbs of Cleveland, and of course, Tel Zeshiv is in Wycliffe. It's also not in Cleveland. So they moved out um, from the old east side in downtown Cleveland. There was in the 1800s. There was big, huge Jewish communities there in in the city itself. There's a mikveh from the 1800s that still exists in downtown. I don't know if it's in use anymore, but the structure is still there. But they moved out of the city, and the founding of Beechwood and these other neighborhoods is really all a, each one is a story in itself. Um, in fact, the first shul uh, in Cleveland is on the site. Of the of the baseball stadium of Progressive Field, and now they in the in right field is where the first shul of Cleveland was. Um, the Cleveland, of course, I'm going to refer to the Cleveland baseball team as a major league baseball team in Cleveland because I don't have any other better name for it. I don't know if it's called the Native American baseball team or if it's still the Indians or they came up with some other creative name. But since they play in Progressive Field, they definitely need to have a progressive name.
So in the 1800s, there's already a, a strong Jewish community in Cleveland, strong enough that one of the most uh, monumental uh, uh, gatherings and events uh, of rabbinic leadership and lay leadership, leadership together took place in American history, in Jewish American history. It was a groundbreaking moment, a watershed moment in American Jewish history. In 1855, there is this attempt at unity across the boards of the entire American Jewish community. It failed. It's because there was not unity. But there was an attempt, which is pretty nice also. Was, uh, uh, the attempt was led by the moderate reformer Isaac uh, Mayer Wise and the, um, I'm sorry, yeah, and, uh, and, uh, and the Orthodox Jewish leader Isaac Leeser from Philadelphia, Wise is from Cincinnati, and um, in 1855 under the banner of Shalom al Yisrael. An attempt at unity, so we bring Jewish people together to unite American Jewry, and it was the only such gathering in the history of American Jewry. We're still waiting for another one, but um, don't hold your breath. But um, there were the resolutions that were that were you know uh, um, were uh, were they 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 proclaimed that this meeting was first of all one of the results of the meeting was that they they wanted to make an. A, a new prayer book, which shouldn't be the German Reform prayer book and not either the Orthodox Standard prayer book, but a new prayer book that Wise was involved with writing that was called the Minhag America prayer book. A very interesting idea. And it was also a statement that American Jewry is on its own. It's different. It's not the German Reform. It's not, Amer it's not the Eastern European Orthodoxy. It's something different and new. But uh, so that was one result. But the there were some other resolutions that Leiser Leiser got in. One that he got them to resolve that the Torah is divine, and that the Talmud is legally binding. So those are pretty uh, important resolutions, and that's one of the reasons that the radical reformers opposed and boycotted the meeting. David Einhorn from Baltimore and others. Um, what the meeting ultimately, this gathering ultimately proved, was that unity across the boards in American Jewry was not possible. So that was a uh, an important one. That's in 1855. Once we're on the topic of Reform Judaism, so Cleveland, so the, the reason that, I mean, they chose Cleveland because it was a, a central place and, uh, and there was a lot of prominent uh, congregations there and, and a few, several Cleveland rabbis were there. But later on, um, Cleveland becomes a center of reform as the leader of Reform Jewry um, in the early part of the 20th century, for about 45 years, was Abba Hillel Silver, um, a leader of Reform. He was a Zionist leader. Um, he was a rabbi in Cleveland for close to half a century, and he was involved with the founding of the State of Israel because he spoke to President Truman several times. He actually nudged him and uh, until Truman got kind of sick of hearing from him. Um, but he was a very, very uh, proactive Zionist leader, and very persistent about getting the state of Israel off the ground. Um, he originally didn't even want to accept the partition plan because it wasn't enough. Um, but he ultimately, a practical person, he did he, he did advise to accept it. He was actually unique for reform rabbi. He was born in Lithuania, in Lita. He was not a German reform rabbi, as were most German, or as either American or German, most reform rabbis in the United States at the time. He was Litvish. He was born near Vilna, and he immigrated with his family when he was nine years old. Yiddish was his first language. He grew up on the Lower East Side, which is one of the many connections to the Lower East Side we're going to have today. He went to public school in the morning, but he went to the Eitz Chaim Yeshiva, Orthodox Yeshiva, 
in the afternoons. But then he went to Hebrew Union College where he got his ordination and uh, he became reformed. But because of his background, he was a little bit different than the more German or the more American reform rabbis because of his very orthodox and Eastern European background. That may have also been the reason that he steered reform towards Zionism, which was um, anathema to uh, to American reform at the time. It was considered dual loyalty, and America is our Zion, and we don't believe in, in nationalism, Jewish nationalism. And uh, he steered reform away from that towards Jewish nationalism towards Zionism. And he also maintained a close relationship with the great Orthodox rabbi, who we'll get to in a second, at the time Rabbi Israel Porath. Um, he, they were close friends. They remained very close. They did a lot of uh, activities, led a lot of leadership uh, roles together for the Cleveland Jewish community. And Rabbi Porath was also a big Zionist and leader in the Mizrahi, but he was very Orthodox. In fact, Silver, when he needed to say Kaddish, he would come to the Heights Jewish Center to Rabbi Porath's shul. Um, now, uh, Silver had some, what he's famous for or infamous for was his controversial positions on Zionism during the war, that he put it as a priority ahead of rescue efforts. And there was a uh, quite a vehement dispute between him and other uh, rescue activists uh, like the Vat Hatzalo and the, the Bergson Group and others. Um, and that was a, a position that he took that was considered very uh, problematic as far as rescue work was considered during the war. He was one of the leading reform rabbis and Zionists, as I mentioned. Um, his congregation was the Tifereth Israel uh, Temple, one of the most prominent reform temples in the country. It was old, from 1850, and, and one of the most liberal and when his during Silver's tenure, there was almost no Hebrew in the service, and the service was on Sundays, not on Shabbos. Um, going from Reform to Conservative, we're going to get to Orthodox, don't worry. Um, rabbi Solomon Goldman was a prominent conservative rabbi. He also is an immigrant. He grew up in Volin in Ukraine. I got a complaint that I said the Ukraine instead of just say Ukraine, not the Ukraine. I don't know. Um, I don't know what people call the Ukraine, like the Bronx or the Congo, but Maybe not, so whatever. Either way, so this Rabbi Solomon Golden went to Reitz. He went to Shiva's Rabbani Yitzchak Chana, but when he got his rabbinical ordination, he got it from the seminary, which actually wasn't as uncommon as we would like, as we would think back then. Um, he was a rabbi for about 10 years in Cleveland, and he steers his congregation towards conservative Judaism. Um, he's later on Chicago also. Um, he was there in the 1920s he spent in Cleveland. He pioneered certain liberal practices in his conservative synagogue. He's also a prominent Zionist leader at the time as well. Another conservative rabbi, a very interesting, a fascinating rabbi who passed away not long ago, conservative, was Rabbi Armand Cohn. And he had an amazingly long career in his conservative synagogue. He was the rabbi from 1934 till 2007. That's a 73-year career all in Cleveland. His parents had died during the flu epidemic of uh, post-World War I, 1918. So he was ordained at the seminary. He becomes the rabbi um, of the Cleveland Jewish Center, the Park Synagogue. And he was very, very concerned in his later years with assimilation. And he therefore helped a lot of the Orthodox organizations settle down in Cleveland. He helped Chabad open up. He donated money to the Agudah, and he was very supportive of the Agudah Yisrael because he believed that they were stemming the tide of assimilation, and he wanted to support them. So the very interesting uh, position that he has there, that he, and that he was 
conservative, but he wanted to help the Orthodox because he felt that they were the answer to stem the tide of assimilation. Um, which brings us to the Orthodox. And one of the first yeshivas in the United States, the first completely um, Torah-only yeshiva in the style of the European yeshivas was the Beis Medrash L'Rabbanim of Rabbi Yudahash Levenberg in the New Haven, New Haven, Connecticut. And uh, Rabbi Levenberg moved the yeshiva to Cleveland, which I'll get to in a second why, but it was in, in Cleveland for several years in the 1930s. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein had a short stint is one of his first positions in the United States, Toledo, and then also in Ohio, and then uh, and then in um, in this Rabbi Yehuda Levenberg's yeshiva, he was a rebbe there for a short period of time. When it was in New Haven, um, the Visker Eloi was involved with the New Haven yeshiva. So you have Rabbi Moshe Feinstein and the Visker Eloi, who played a prominent role in our Lower East Side episode, are now coming into Cleveland, um, or at least the base uh, the base of the New Haven yeshiva. Um, in its place in New Haven and later on in Cleveland. Um, Rav Ruderman was, was there for also a very short period of time because his father-in-law, Rav Sheftel Kramer, was, who was the Meshkich in Slutsk before that, before that in Slabatka, he, he, was a, he was involved with the New Haven Yeshiva and later on in Cleveland. And um, Rav uh, Yudash Lovenberg is actually buried in New Haven, not in Cleveland. He had a very rough time in Cleveland. He didn't have it easy. He passed away young. Um, he was in his, uh, his early fifties. Um, there was a he tried to bring order. He was a, he was a rabbi, as rabbi of the community. He tried to bring order to kashrus, which is such a familiar story about the early rabbis that they attempted to fix up the kashrus and the butcher situation, and which with the, 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 he got into a kashrus dispute with the butchers, which led to his arrest and police police abuse. We talk about police brutality and abuse. It's popular in the news today. So he's a victim of police brutality. It's such a terrible story that this great Rav and Tzaddik and, and Rosh Hashiva was arrested by the police because framed for something he never did wrong, just trying to improve the Kashra situation. And, uh, and, and, and this is what happened. And he, he passed away shortly after. His health was already deteriorating. He had... He was a product of, of the Litvish yeshiva aristocracy. He learned in Malch and in Slabotka. Malch by Rizalman Sandy Kahan, and then later in Slabotka. He comes to the United States in 1910 under Moshe Matche Epstein, the Rashid of Slabotka, on his behalf to fundraise. And he becomes a rabbi in Jersey City. And then he becomes the, ra- the rabbi of the Jewish community in New Haven. And that's where he founds the yeshiva in 1923. And um, some of them. Early prominent uh, students, these were Chaim Scheinberg, who later on went to the mayor um, in Poland, and there was a few others like that. They studied in the New Haven Yeshiva. So he moves to Cleveland in 1930, and it fell apart in 1938, really, late 1930s, about, about the time of his passing. He was brought to Cleveland as part of a delegation of rabbis in order to bring order to the kashras and the rabbinical leadership in the city. So he becomes the rabbi of the Chibas Yerushalayim shul, and he moves the yeshiva to that shul. With the Sheftel Kramer, one of the rabbeim in those early years was actually Rabbi Belkin, one who later became the dean of Yeshiva University. So Rabbi Belkin was a rebbe in the Cleveland New Haven yeshiva, and also, like I said, Rabbi Ruderman for a short period of time. And there was a lot of dispute about kashras and within the yeshiva, a lot of a lot of dispute and politics, and he was absent from the yeshiva for a period of time because of his wife's illness. He had to return to New York. He had a lot of troubles, um, and things didn't work out. And though he was popular on his 50th birthday, 
um, which was a couple of years before he passed away, the Cleveland Jewish community made a jubilee celebration for him with a book that they put out, mostly in Yiddish, and a dinner, an amazing document that uh, a very knowledgeable uh, listener uh, shared with me before the Cleveland podcast that uh, showed me this this amazing jubilee uh, dedication to to Rabbi uh, Levenberg. Um, he had other Rashi Yeshiva there, Urameir Tzirlin, who left shortly afterwards for Los Angeles, and then the Ramesha Feinstein of Chaim Elazari. That also didn't work out. So Rabbi Levenberg got sick. He passed in 1938, and the Yeshiva kind of fell apart. Uh, during that same period of time, it was the Prohibition era, um, the uh, the um, the when when alcohol was illegal in the United States, so many Jews they they made you know profiteered off the bootlegging. Um, and that's and according to some versions, that's one of the reasons the yeshiva moved there was to benefit from it. So in that context, it's of course worth mentioning the Jewish mafia in Cleveland. We always like to talk about the Jewish mobsters. Um, the Cleveland Syndicate was a very prominent uh, mobster gangster syndicate. It was organized by Mo Dalitz, who was a legendary Jewish gangster. He, was, he wasn't even really in Cleveland. It was called the Cleveland Syndicate. He ran it. He founded it. He was in other places in Ohio, but he was very active in Las Vegas and in other places where the Jewish uh, mob was uh, active. Um, but one of the locals who was active, very involved in Cleveland itself, was Louis Rothkoff and um, and several other uh, Jewish gangsters who who uh, ran the Jewish mob and, uh, you know, bootleg. Uh, bootlegging liquor, and then later on um, gambling and all other kinds of rackets that they had um, on a smaller scale than, than, than in, in Chicago or in New York, but the uh, Jewish mob was definitely uh, very active there. So the rabbi, for close to half a century, the main primary Orthodox rabbi was Rabbi Israel Porath, a fascinating individual um, who, um, the first half of the 20th century, he's the rabbi of uh, Cleveland, of Jewish Cleveland. He was actually Israeli, wasn't European. He studied as a youth in Eitz Chaim. He grew up in the old Yishuv of Yerushalayim. Um, he immigrated to the United States in, in 1923, and he became a rabbi in Cleveland two years later, first in the Oheb Tzedek Shul, and then in Nevei Tzedek, and then he had a short stint in New York, and then he returns to Cleveland to the Heights Jewish Center, uh, where he remained the rabbi till he retired in the 1970s, 1972, I believe, and he moved back to Israel at that point. And he was literally, he was like the chief rabbi, basically. Of, he started the Merkaz Harabanim of the greater Cleveland area, which he was the president of. He was the senior and leading Orthodox rabbi of the Cleveland area for decades. He was involved in, in every aspect of communal and rabbinic life. He was very prominent in the Mizrahi. He was a Zionist. Um, he had a, in fact, in honor to honor him in his later years, the Cleveland Jewish community had a forest planted in his honor through the JNF. Um, he grew up, like I said, in Yerushalayim. He grew up in the old Yishuv, but he very quickly shifted over to the new Yishuv. He had a smicha from Rav Kook, um and from Rav Chaim Berlin, the son of the Nitziv, and from the Ridbaz, who wasn't in Yerushalayim. He was up in Sfas, Rav Yanko David Volovsky, um, the Slutskarov. And, and he, and he was very active in Israel before he even moved to America. He, when, he, when, while still in Israel, he represented the Jewish community to the Ottoman Turkish government. And he actually traveled to Istanbul, um, to represent the needs of the Jewish community of Yerushalayim during that time. And he was also the joint representative in the aftermath of World War I. The dire poverty and people that, World War I in, in Yerushalayim and the Yishuv and, in, in, in Eretz Yisrael in general, the people, 
to understand how people literally died of starvation. People dropped dead of starvation and malnutrition during World War I in Yerushalayim, of course, of disease also, typhus, and he, um, the joint did as much to try to uh, do funding there, and he represented the, Rabbi Israel Perot, represented the joint. And um, so he comes to uh, to Cleveland eventually, and he brings order to the Kashas. He finally brings uh, brings uh, law and order to the Kashas situation. He invests much in Jewish education, to the Adas afternoon Jewish school, and eventually in the post-war when uh, Jewish day schools and tells yeshiva comes and originally when Rebbe Mayor Bloch and Ramatul Katz they tried to when we're gonna, which we're going to get to um, about setting up tells yeshiva so they said it when most of the town the cities that they wanted to set up the tells yeshiva the the community was opposed to it and even the rabbi of the community was opposed to setting up the yeshiva the first rav the first rabbi to support them in building the yeshiva there was Rabbi Israel Porath he was really involved in everything and he's also quite a Talmud Chacham. He wrote a multi-volume sefer called Mavoy HaTalmud. Um, so, uh, but uh, we'll get to his, his, we'll get back to Rehupor, that we have more to say on him also. But once I mentioned the founding of Tells, I want to get to Tells a little bit in part one. We can't do justice to uh, to Cleveland without talking about Tells. We can't push that off to part two. So we'll we'll get back to Rehupor a little more soon. So Tells was in Lithuania, and and uh, it was an old yeshiva in Lita, and they were in Lithuania proper, in independent Lithuania in the interwar period. They were not in Poland. And so in the beginning of the war, with the famous escape that most yeshivas had to do to Vilna to get away from the Soviets, the Tels yeshiva obviously did not have to do that because they were in Lithuania already. They didn't have to go anywhere. Uh, so they stay put. They stay in Tels. Um, they didn't have to go to Vilna. They didn't go anywhere. They were in dire financial circumstances, and then eventually in the summer of 1940, it didn't help to run away from the Soviets because the Soviets came to the Baltic states and they took it over and they incorporated it in August 1940 into the Soviet Union. So Lithuania becomes under Soviet uh, control. So around this time, during this early part of the war, Rebellion Mayor Bloch and Ramatul Katz, Rebellion Mayor Bloch was the youngest son of the Telzerov and Rosh Hashiva. Uh, the original one, basically Bloch, and a brother of the current Rashiva Rav Yitzchak Bloch. And Ramatul Katz was a son-in-law of Rabbi Yosef Leib. And they were both involved in the yeshiva at the time. So they're sent off to the United States for to fundraise for the yeshiva to see if there's any prospects of getting them visas and trying to get them out. In fact, one of the one the one who helped them get out was the, a former Telzer alumnus, Bernard Revel from, um, from YU, who was literally in the last months of his life at the time. So they get to the United States, they try to start organizing the situation, but soon enough, unfortunately, we know that the Nazis invaded. June 22nd, 1941, Operation Barbarossa tells us near the German border, it's within literally a day or two that the Germans, the Nazis reach tells, and there's no more tells. The summer of 1941 tells is wiped out like the rest of Lithuania, and they, the, the rebellion Mary Bloch, and Rabatul Katz, who lose their entire families, almost their entire families. Tremendous tragedy in the yeshiva, and the town, and the community, everything. They had gone to America to be able to fundraise and to try to help them out, and now there's nothing there. What are they going to do now? And they, so it's 1941, they decide we're opening tells in America. Eventually they had a, 
starts as a yeshiva, as a post-high school-based medrash, and eventually a high school, and eventually they're involved, the Telzer's involved with the Hebrew Academy, with Nachum Velvel Dessler, which we'll get to, who was a big Telzer Talmud, and the, and also, the Telzer Yeshiva is involved in the Yavna uh, a Girls' School, which has this carries the same name as the Girls' School, the almost revolutionary Girls' School in Telz, and in Coven, and other places in Lithuania. So Rebbe Blach, who loses his entire family um, in Telz, He's on the Lower East Side of Manhattan in the Jewish community. He's in a Sfarim store. And he asks, to, in, a, in a very famous story, he asks to buy a Ktsoy Sachoshin, a classic yeshiva sefer. And the proprietor of the store says, take care of this Ktsoy Sachoshin because this will be the last Ktsoy to ever be sold in America. And Rabbi Baruch said, no, it's not going to be the last one to be sold because we're going to rebuild we're going to start tells again, and we're going to have it, and we're going to have it, and, and there's going to be many, many more ktsaises sold here. And it had to be, you had to have a lot of vision. Today we can take it for granted. We look around and say, come on, of course, this ktsais is sold every day. But to understand that in 1941, when the news of what's happening back in Europe and the situation, what was going on in the United States at the time, to have that vision, you had to have, I mean, it's it's almost beyond belief. And he, Rebbe Meir Blach was very energetic. He had a vision to build. And he was involved in the in the creating of Tyre Messiah and the Yagodis Yisrael. Even though he was somewhat a Zionist, already back in Lithuania, and he had uh, some Zionist leanings, and he participated in, in the Zionist get-togethers in Cleveland also, but he was still part of the Yagodis Yisrael. And um, he galvanized the people around him. He was a captivating, a magnetic individual, and this is along with Ramatul Katz, who outlived him by a decade. So he had the sole, uh, was the sole Rosh Hashiva for a period of time after Rabbi Meir Bloch passed away at a relatively young age in the 1950s. So Ramatul Katz, who had lost his wife and 10 children. Before that, a life of, of tragedy. Before that, he lost his first wife and child. Then he remarried and had his second wife and 10 children. The Nazis killed them all. And here he comes and when he was already in Tells, he was in Lithuania, he was the Reish Kail, and he was involved in the starting of Yavne in Tells back in Lita, and in the Mechina, and the, in the younger, like the high school level. And he was a big Agudist back in Lithuania. He wrote for the newspaper of the Agudist Yisrael. And, um, and he was a, a master mechanic. So he comes to, tell, to Cleveland, he rebuilds Tells, he marries for a third time, and has a new family, and he builds up Tells and all the Tyra that exists in Cleveland, and also Tells Chicago, which he built. And he oversees the move from Cleveland, from downtown to Wycliffe, to outside the, 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 the new campus. And he opens the Kail in Tells, and he builds the yeshiva, and he's still there when the fire, uh, the tragic fire that destroyed a, a large part of the yeshiva um, in those early years, which two... Students of the Tells Yeshiva lost their lives, unfortunately, and that fire of was still around for that. And then he oversaw with his vision to rebuild the, the Yeshiva after the fire and a huge base medrash. And at its peak, it has well over 400 students in the 1960s. And uh, in fa- one of their fundraisers becomes their trademark is the Hanukkah candles. They have a Hanukkah candle campaign. I remember growing up, we always looked forward to receiving the Tells box of Hanukkah candles that uh, it becomes literally the Tells trademark. Tells Cleveland, you know, you, you only you only light Hanukkah candles with the Tells uh, the Tells are candles, and um, and in fact, in at one year, I forget which year it was, 
but there was a longshoreman strike and their candle shipment from Israel couldn't get out of the New York City docks and they couldn't send it out. Now, a shipment like that, if you miss Hanukkah, then, then you're done. I mean, you can't send it out after Hanukkah. So they had to turn over the world to get past the strike or Moshe Sherer of the Agudas Yisrael. He had to help it get released despite the fact that there was a strike. All story to save the Tel Hanukkah candles. And after a Matul Katz uh, passes on in 1964, so the two younger Rashi Yeshiva, they become the senior Rashi Yeshiva, Matcha Gifter, who, and Rabbach Saratskin, who both of them were in, in legendary Rashi Yeshiva and very influential in Tells and Tyre in America and then on the Cleveland Jewish community. You had others there, and a mirror from Shanghai, Pesach Stein, who had married into the Telzer family, Rabbi Isaac Uzband, and of course Rabbi Chaim Stein, who was around till recently, and other, many other, Rabbi Barkin, other Tells personalities, could literally talk about these great Telza Rashi Yeshiva. Each and every one of these individuals uh, probably deserves its own uh, his own episode. Um, but the development of the Yeshiva and its golden age during the 1960s, 70s, and later on it had a, went on a bit of more challenging times, um, a bit of a decline in in in, in, uh, in uh, subsequent years. But that's more contemporary, which um, I I'm not going to be getting into. So. What we're going to do is is cut it short here as the, at the end of part one. We will, within the next day or two, promise we'll have out a, a part two to continue about the story of the Jewish community of Cleveland. So this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com. Um, and for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, virtual tours, lectures, and um, and sponsorships, and you can subscribe to our podcast on Podbean, and follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.